Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show number 170. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. First week into the new year and the Starship Sova kicks off with all her engines blazing. Did you pop over and have a look at new website? Josh uh, brought it in on time as well. <laughs> you know, the pressure was on there. Wow. So the website is now up and running. There's little things what we've got to still keep on stick plugging away at because there was a lot of work there, especially to get it all done in one day. And like I say, Josh working on the kind of the back engine side of it. It's been working on this for months, but it's all now coming together and it looks fantastic. I'll give a little talk a bit through that later on in the show, but I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. Just to remind everyone, the voting for the Sofa Note Awards 2011 runs out on the 9th of January, so make sure you get your votes in. There'll be a link on the front of the website on the landing page, as I like to call it now. Yes. If you've had the email, we'll certainly send some more emails out before it closes, but do get your cast your vote. Then we have a bit of short fiction, Names of Water by Kiz Johnson. Then we have Rod Barnett's Film Talk, first one, first fact article of the New Year, Rod. There you go. Then I'm going to do a little fact article, and it's only going to be a little one. It's just to mention the Narrator's Workshop. The Narrator's Workshop tickets are now on sale for that event, which starts on the 5th of February. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. Then we have the main fiction, which is Salvage in Space by Jack Williamson. 
And if you remember, I was kind of tying with the ideas of the then and now competition-wise. Well, if I've got two stories that are like one from right up the f- now and one from the way back in the past, I'll play them together if it kind of all works out. But there's not going to be the competition. We'll just have them to compare, if that's all right. So that's what we're going to do today. Kiz Johnson and Jack Williamson. So that's what's coming up in today's show. Before I jump into that, did anybody notice <laughs> that I didn't see Oral Delights show 170? Wasn't that one of the main topics for the meta show? <laughs> I forgot the bloody thing. Hey, it's hard when you're kind of shooting from the hip. I had a few notes down there, but I just forgot all about that. And what I'm going to do is just basically drop the words oral delights. I think Starship's over now. Everyone knows what we do. And we don't have to kind of have this oral delights. It's going to be hard for me because it's just part of the, the rhythm. Do you know? But... From now on, it's just going to be Starship Sofa, show number whatever, and we'll eventually kind of fade out the oral delights. Yes, it's on the website at the moment, under a heading, but that will change soon as well. But do pop over to the website. So, first up, just again, a little plug for the Sofa Note Awards. Please pop over there, come over here and, you know, cast your vote. It's it's so close there now, and there is, you know, cliches all around. It is very close in some quarters. Certainly is. So please do that. That'll be fantastic. Next week on the 12th, we will announce the winners of the Sofa Note Awards. So like I say, you've only got until the 9th, which is, if this comes out on Wednesday, one, two, three, four days left to cast your vote. And then we will have the announcement on the 12th. So please pop over and say hello and cast your vote. So, first up is a little bit of short fiction by Kiz Johnson, Names of Water. Kiz Johnson was born in 1960 in Iowa. She is an American writer of fantasy. She wrote that fantastic story the couple of years ago, 28 Monkeys, which I was kind of plugging for a Hugo Award, but you, you know, that kind of stick me colours to the mast. <laughs> Only sinks away, and alas, Kiz didn't win with that story there. But what a fine story. She's worked extensively in publishing, managing editor for Tor Books and Wizard of the Coast. She's also associate director for the Centre of Study of Science Fiction at the University of Kansas and serves as a final judge for the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. Miss Johnson is the author of three novels and more than 30 short works of fiction. She is the winner of the 1994 Theodore Sturgeon Award for a story, Fox Magic. She also won the 2008 World Fantasy Award for a story. Actually, it's, well, I'm saying 28. I think it's 26 monkeys. <laughs> what a professional. Also into the abyss, as it was given its full title. Now, apologies to Kish if I get this novel wrong, but her novel, Fudugoi, was declared one of the best science fiction fantasy novels of 2003 by Publishers Weekly. Do please pop over, I'll put a link onto Kish's site, do pop over there, like I say, I just love her work and it's fan, you know, it's just an amazing writer. The story is narrated by Lizzie Ann Hurd. Lizzie has done work for June Steve and has her own art and stories published in various online zines and podcasts. She's done a number of work for Starship Sover as well. She was the narrator of David Makuru's Snatch Me Another, if you can remember that one. And we'll have certainly have some more work by Lizzie Ann as well, so do look out for that. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Names for Water by Kidge Johnson 
Hala is running for class when her cell phone rings. She slows to take it from her pocket, glances at the screen. Unknown caller. It rings again. She does not pick up calls when she doesn't know who it is, but this time she hits talk. Not sure what's different, except that she is late for a class she dreads, and this call delays the moment when she must sit down and be overwhelmed. Hello, she says. No one speaks. There is only the white noise that is always in the background of her cell phone calls. It could be the result of a flaw in the tiny cheap speaker, but is probably microwaves, though she likes to imagine sometimes that... It is the whisper of air molecules across all the thousands of miles between two people. The hiss in her ear. She walks across the commons of the engineering building, a high-ceilinged room crowded with students shaking water from their jackets and umbrellas on their way to class. Some look as overwhelmed as she feels. It is nearly finals, and they are probably not sleeping any more than she is. Beyond the glass wall, it is raining. Cars pass on Laughlin Street across the wet lawn. Water sprays from their wheels. Her schoolwork is not going well. It is her third year toward an engineering degree. But just now, that seems an unreachable goal. The science is simple enough, but the mathematics has been hard, and she is losing herself in the tricky mazes of complex variables. She thinks of dropping the class and switching her major to something simpler. But if she doesn't become an engineer, what will she do instead? This is Hala, she says, her voice sharper. Who is this? This is the last thing she needs right now, a forgotten phone in a backpack crushed against a textbook and accidentally speed dialing her. Or worse, someone's idea of a prank. She listens for breathing, but hears only the constant hiss. No, it is not quite steady. Or perhaps she has never before listened carefully. It changes, grows louder and softer like traffic passing, as though someone has dropped a phone onto the sidewalk of a busy street. She wonders about the street, if it is a real street, where in the city it is, what cars and buses and bicycles travel it. Or it might be in another city, somewhere distant and fabulous. Mumbai, Tokyo, Wellington, Santiago. The names are like charms that summon unknown places, unfamiliar smells, the tastes of new foods. Class time. Students pull in the classroom doors and push through. She should join them, find a seat, turn on her laptop. But she is reluctant to let go of this strange moment for something so prosaic. She puts down her bag and holds the phone closer. The sound in her ear ebbs and flows. No, it is not a street. The cell phone is a shell held to her ear, and she knows with the logic of dreams or exhaustion that it is water she hears, surf rolling against a beach, an ocean perhaps. No one speaks or breathes into the phone because it is the water itself that talks to her. She says to it, the Pacific Ocean. It is the ocean closest to her, the one she knows best. It pounds against the coast an hour from the university. On weekends, back when school was not so hard, she walked through the thick-leaved plants that grew on its cliffs. The waves threw themselves against the rocks and burst into spray that made the air taste of salt and ozone. Looking west at dusk, the Pacific seemed endless, but it was not. 6,000 miles to the nearest land, 90 million miles to the sun as it dropped below the horizon, and beyond that, to the first star, a vast but measurable distance. Hala liked the sudden idea that if she calls the water by its right name, it will speak in more than just this hiss. 
The Atlantic Ocean, she says. She imagines waters deep with fish, floored with eyeless crabs and abandoned telecommunication cables. The Arctic, the Indian Ocean, ice blue as turquoise, water like sapphires. The waves keep their counsel. She has not named them properly. She speaks the names of the seas, the Mediterranean, the Baltic, the Great Bight of Australia, the Red and Black and Dead Seas. They are an incantation filled with the rumble of great ships and the silence of corals and anemones. When these do not work, she speaks the words for such lakes as she remembers. Superior, Victoria, Titicaca. They have waves as well. Water brushes their shores, pushed by winds more than the moon's inconstant face. Birds rise at dusk from the rushes along shoreline marshes and return at dawn. Eagles ride the thermals above basalt cliffs and watch for fish. Baikal, the great bear, Malawi. The halls are empty now. Perhaps she is wrong about what sort of water it is, and so she tries other words. Streams, brooks, kills, runs, rills. Water, summoned by gravity, coaxed or seduced or forced from one place to the next. An estuary, ponds and pools, snow and steam. Cumulus, she says, and thinks of the clouds mounding over Kansas on summer afternoons. Stratus, altostratus, typhoons, water spouts. There is so much water, so many possibilities. But even if she knew the names of each raindrop and every word in every language for ice, she would be wrong. It is not these things. She remembers the sleet that cakes on her car's windshield when she visits her parents in Wisconsin in winter. A stream she remembers from when she was a child, minnows shining uncatchable just under the surface. The Mississippi, broad as a lake where it passes St. Louis. In August, it is the color of café au lait and smells of mud and diesel exhaust. Hoarfrost coats a century-old farmhouse window in starbursts. Bathtubs filled with blue-tinted bubbles that smell of lavender. These are real things, but they are wrong. They are not names, but memories. It is not the water of the world, she thinks. It is perhaps the water of dreams. Memory, she says, naming a hidden ocean of the heart. Longing, death, joy. The sound in her ear changes a little, as though the wind in that distant place has grown stronger, or the tide has turned, but it is still not enough. The womb, uh, love, hope. She repeats, hope, hope, until it becomes a sound without meaning. It is not the water of this world, she thinks. This is the truth. It is water rolling against an ocean's sandy shore, but it is alien sand on another world, impossibly distant. It is unknown, unknowable, a riddle she will never answer in a foreign tongue she will never hear. It is also an illusion brought on by exhaustion. She knows the sound is just white noise. She's known that all along. But she wanted it to mean something, enough that she was willing to pretend to herself because just now she needs a charm against the sense that she is drowning in schoolwork and uncertainty about her future. Tears burn her eyes. A ridiculous response. Fine, she says, like a hurt child. You're not even there. She presses end and the phone goes silent a shell of dead plastic filled with circuit boards. It is empty. Complex variables. She'll never understand today's lesson after coming in ten minutes late. She shoulders her bag to leave the building. She forgot her umbrella, so she'll be soaked before she gets to the bus. 
she leans forward, hoping her hair will shield her face, and steps out into the rain. The bus she just misses drives through a puddle, and the splash is an elegant, complex shape, a high-order bezier curve. The rain whispers on the lawn, chatters in the gutters and drains. The oceans of the heart. She finds unknown caller in her call history and presses talk. The phone rings once, twice. Someone, something, picks up. Hala, she says to the hiss of cosmic microwaves of space. Your name is Hala. Hala, a voice says very loud and close. It is the unsuppressed echo common to local calls. She knows this, but she also knows it is real. A voice from a place unimaginably distant but attainable. It is the future. She will pass complex variables with a C+. She will change her major to physics, graduate, and go to grad school to study astrophysics. Seven years from now, as part of her dissertation, she will write a program that searches the data that comes from the Webb Telescope, which will have been launched in 2014. Eleven years and six months from now, her team of five will discover water's fingerprints splashed across the results matrix from a planet circling Beta Leonis, 50 light years away, a star ignored for decades because of its type. The presence of phyllosilicates will indicate that the water is liquid. Eighteen months later, their results will be verified. One hundred and forty-six years from now, the first men and women will stand on the planet circling Beta Leonis, and they will name the ocean Hala. Hala doesn't know this, but she snaps the phone shut and runs for class. Don't forget, copyright is Kiz Johnson's. Again, pop over to Kiz's site and say hello. And a big thank you to Lizzie Ann Heard. Lizzie, thank you so much. Do pop over to Lizzie's site. Next up is Film Talk by Rod Barnett. Rod, Happy New Year, sir. I hope you have a really good one. Hello, everybody. I'm going to have to admit up front that I'm probably not the right guy to be reviewing a sequel to the movie Tron. Because, you see, I've tried many times over the years, but I have still never managed to sit all the way through the entire film. I think I've seen the entire film in bits and pieces spread out over the past 28 years or so, but I've always found the thing so stinking boring that I just can't manage it. It's truly dull. It was made in 1982 during that horrible period when Disney just couldn't make a good film if you begged them to. Tron is a beloved movie, though. Not just amongst computer geeks, either. I mean, it's got its cult following. And in a way, I guess it really kind of has a reason to have a cult following. I mean, there's no other movie that's ever really looked that way. It doesn't have any sense of having been done before. It looks unique. Even today, well, I say even today, even though it's almost impossible to see it right now, it's very, very difficult to find a copy to rent or buy. It certainly can't buy it. The DVD's out of print, and you'd have thought that that was something that Disney, always willing to make a buck, would have seen was available, especially at Christmas time. Can you imagine how many copies of Tron on DVD and Gasp Blu-ray they would have sold for Christmas? Especially since we've got the long-awaited, 28 years later, sequel hitting theaters just before Christmas. Very strange. Not sure exactly why they did that. But nevertheless, here it is, and we have a Tron sequel. Now, as I've said, I'm not a big fan of the original film. 
I don't think it's a terrible movie. I just think it's incredibly dull. So you can guess that I went into this film, Tron Legacy, with lowered expectations. And I'm going to tell you right up front that that's probably the best way for anybody to go see Tron Legacy. I have a few friends who are big Tron fans, and they were a bit disappointed. They felt it was a little boring, and they were a little underwhelmed. Not by the visuals. Oh, no. Not the visuals, but let's talk about the plot, such as it is, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the film. Tron Legacy tells the story of a young boy and his beautiful dog. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Forget that. Scratch it. That's another film entirely. Um, no, no. Tron Legacy tells the story of uh, Sam Flynn. He's the son of Kevin Flynn, who was the main character of the first Tron film. Kevin Flynn was played by Jeff Bridges. Uh, Sam Flynn is played by a newcomer named Garrett Hudland, and he does a pretty good job and kind of looks like he could be Jeff Bridges' son in a sort of kind of way. See, Kevin Flynn was a computer visionary that disappeared 20 years earlier after telling his son that he'd witnessed a miracle that would change the world. Now, after disappearing, everybody, including his son Sam, suspect that his father simply ran away. He's pretty bitter about it, and he continues to dodge his responsibilities as the primary shareholder of his father's global corporation and spends his time kind of rebelling against the company and what he perceives as his heritage. Kevin's old friend and Sam's sometime kind of surrogate stepfather, Alan, who's played by Bruce Boxleitner, also from the original film, tells Sam that he uh, received a page from Kevin's old arcade, which featured, of course, prominently in the first film. Sam doesn't really think there's anything to this, but he goes to the arcade to look around anyway and discovers a secret room with a computer and some material that seems to actually be active. Quicker than you can say, let's get this story started, the same thing that happened to his father in the first film happens to the son, and a laser digitizes him and transports him into the computer reality. So Sam, of course, finds himself in the computerized world known as The Grid, where he's quickly captured and forced into games for the amusement of the grid's new boss. Now, in the first film, the great David Warner played the evil boss of the grid, the master control program. And yes, I actually managed to remember that without having to look it up. In this film, you don't have David Warner, but they have pulled out a pretty interesting little trick, which is the main reason I actually wanted to see this movie. Because in this film, the bad guy is played by Jeff Bridges. How is this, you say? Isn't Jeff Bridges in the film as Kevin Flynn, the father, the lost father that the son then finds? Why, yes, he is. But Bridges plays both characters. And in a very interesting turn of computer CGI event, he's made to look like his younger self to play the villainous role. This is some very good CGI, and well worth seeing. But I will admit that because the character is on screen for so long a period of time, eventually it goes from being very interesting to being slightly creepy to really not looking as realistic as it probably ought to. But, that being said, the creepy Jeff Bridges made younger thing isn't bad enough to really upset the viewer, there are other things, though, that I think that might upset viewers. There's very little light humor in this film. It's pretty dark, actually. As a matter of fact, it 
has the kind of dark feel of a film that you would kind of expect made in this day and age. It's not as dark as, say, something like Blade Runner or Alien or something of that nature, but it is a dark film in tone and in the way it carries the action forward from set piece to set piece. And that is a big break from the original film, which had a good deal of light joking and some general good-natured humor. This film doesn't have that. The tone of this film is a little bit darker, but it's not overly dark. I mean, the film is rated PG, for goodness sake. But that is something you should be aware of. It does look spectacular. That Blade Runner idea that I tossed out a second ago is about right. That really is the idea for how this film looks. Nice, dark, interestingly detailed. But let's be blunt. The reason somebody's going to go see this film, at least people who aren't already Tron enthusiasts and I can't believe I just used that phrase, are people who are looking for an action film. Because that's how the trailer sells this movie. Plenty of action. And once Sam is inside the grid, he is, of course, immediately placed within the games, which are a big part of the whole reason for Tron. I mean, it is a video game to a large degree, right? And that's some very exciting stuff. The light cycles, the uh, throwing of the discs thing, the whole shattering of people that I'm sure you've seen in the trailers by now. All very interesting, all very exciting. And also just as empty as you would expect. Just as empty as the they were in the first film. I don't know that that's necessarily a, a critique of the film. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be to a degree, but eh. I will say that although I did enjoy the action scenes for the most part, there were more than a few points where I couldn't quite work out where, say, a light cycle was, or what level it was on, or how these two things might eventually connect or get in the way of each other. And later on in the film, when you're flying around in all these flying machines, I had a similar problem, not being quite sure exactly where things were at times. It's not uh, hyperactive editing, it's more along the lines of everything in the background looking extremely dark and pretty much the same, so there's really very little chance to have some grasp of exactly where things are. But, still an exciting film, still a section of the film that I enjoyed, and I think most people would enjoy to a certain degree. I think that for most people, especially science fiction fans, you've already made your decision on whether or not you're going to see Tron Legacy. You either really, really love the old film or you're just curious enough to go see this one because, hey, there's nothing else science fiction out there right now. But I'm here to tell you, it's not as bad as some people are saying. It's also not anywhere near the classic that, for some reason, some people were hoping it was going to be. But it's a, it's a passable enough time waster. That's, I guess, damning it with faint praise, huh? Well, I would like to single these things out. Jeff Bridges is really good in both of his roles, of course, even though his lips do look weird the longer they're on when he's in that young guy phase. Bruce Boxleitner is very, very good, known primarily, of course, as Tron from the first film, but as a TV actor who really came into his own doing five years of Babylon 5 on television, he turns in a fantastic performance and does a really good job. And I'd like to point out a very odd bit of casting as well, something that I haven't heard anybody else drawing a lot of attention to, and that is a small role played by Killian Murphy. Excellent actor. He played, the, played Scarecrow in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. He was in uh, Danny Boyle's Sunshine and numerous other films. Very good actor. But I can't for the life of me figure out why they cast such a well-known and good actor in such a tiny, tiny role. 
I kept thinking that surely Murphy was going to show up on the grid playing some bad guy character, right? But he never did, which makes me think that they might just be trying to set up, tenuously anyway, a third Tron film. And I'm guessing that I'm probably right. And I'm also guessing that it won't take 28 years before it comes out, if this one does well enough. Interesting. Strange. It's hard to miss him. He has a good bit of dialogue in the one sequence near the beginning of the film that he's in. Strange. Strange. So, I kind of give a half-hearted thumbs up to Tron Legacy. It's worth seeing if you're curious. If you're not curious, don't bother. But, it's an okay time at the movies. Stay well, and stay warm. Hopefully inside a cinema watching a good film. Game one, can I say, Rod? Thank you so much. So it's my little section, and I'll, honestly, I'll not be too long here waffling on about things, but I just want to kind of mention up the website again and the first of the Starships of HD events, the Narrator's Workshop, which actually doesn't come under the HD section, or it actually does on the website, but we don't need video for this one. That's why it's up and running. If you remember last week in the Meta Show, just waiting really for the Citrix Online go to webinar company to kind of release or announce the release date for the HD faces. Then we'll kind of really get kicking and rolling with everything else. But the Narrator's Workshop and probably a few other workshops is going to be released pretty soon. But that Narrator's Workshop is up and running and sold a ticket already. Yes. Before that, let's get into the website. I'll just give you a little kind of heads up how it's going to run. So please do pop over there just to have a look at it. You know, the front. It's now, as you, it's not, in the old way, it was just really basic, like a, a blog page with different, you know, the different shows kind of scrolling down. And that's, that's all you had, a couple of posts on the right-hand side. Now, in kind of web, web world, landing pages are coming kind of back in, like a landing page where you can, you can land on it. And then from there, go off in the various directions. And that's exactly what we've got here. But what I wanted with this one was to really highlight the art because it was fed up with like great art and then it was just disappearing all the time. You know, after a couple of posts, it was going down the, the page and you couldn't really see it. Now the way Josh has designed it is we're going to have the big header there now. And actually at this moment, it is the Emperor of Mars story. And there's a it's like a section which is kind of zoomed in on that, that picture. So on every header of the website, you'll have this big portion of the Emperor of Mars story. And that's up there until we get another bit of artwork going as well. So let's just say, for example, we have next month another piece of artwork. I would actually zoom in. I would, it would be my job to kind of zoom in, pick a little bit of that picture, and it goes up as the header. But then when you're on the actual front landing page, every show is going to have that same header, that, sorry, that same artwork, but in the full image of it on the front page so when you actually go on the front page you'll see the full picture of just say the emperor of mars and then when next week's show comes out that doesn't have any artwork you'll still see that front picture of the emperor of mars and so on and so on until we actually get a new bit of art then that'll be uploaded and that you'll see that one for the kind of four weeks that it's up there so that was always one of my main things was to have this artwork kind of prominent and just really displayed a, a much better and like I say, the way we've got it working with kind of in coalition or in coalition, in conjunction with 
the, the banner is it's fantastic Josh thank you so much for that do you know what I mean the emails it's coming on the par with between me and Dee now you know me and Josh sending all the emails so along the top we have the home and actually these words might change slightly over the you know I've been dropping Josh some emails but we have the home the forum a blog post is where really I just released something and it's got nothing to do, that has no like audio show in it it might be just an announcement let's say about the narrator's workshop you know, you could go to that blog section and it would put up all them that haven't really got audio attached to it. Next up is a section that actually a tab that says Oral Delights. Now that's going to be replaced by Fact. And click on that or just hover your mouse over that. That'll bring up all the Fact sections. So you've got the Explained in 60 Seconds, Everything, Fiction Crawler. And that will take you to every show that's got, say, for Matt's Fiction Crawler. You click on that, then that will bring up all the shows that Matt's been in on Fiction Crawler. So, again, Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. You click on that, and if anyone's really wanting to go through all Amy's work, there it is, you know, it's all up there, easy to kind of navigate. There is, which is a great page there, it's actually at the moment on, you can go to Podcast Archives, it's on the front main page under the big picture, or it's actually on this little pull-down Oral Delights tab called Podcast Archives. And that has, this is a great page, that takes you to every show we've done. Do you know what I mean? And it's actually, it's lovely to have a look at it, you know, because straight away, bang, number one, Michael Moorcock, and it's all written, it's all on one page. And, you know, right from number one, right up to the day, but actually it's got show 169, the meta show. So you can just have a look at a quick glance to see what we've done, which is just fantastic. Then we've got the sanatorium and the sofa note show. Then the gallery is up and running. We've got a new gallery, which just so much easier and a lot's going to be updated with as soon as I release a program that's got artwork in it'll just link up Josh has got it so it all just kind of links up to the gallery and again there you can just click on and it's like a light box system working there where it brings up the picture you know a bigger picture fantastic then we have the shop now the shop has it's perfect because I wanted something that was just simple do you know what I mean I didn't want kind of loads of different things I just wanted Big images, you know, and, and simple. And that's what it is. And first up, you can, we've got the kind of the, the three books Starship Sova has done. Then there is actually Starship Sova merchandise. We've got there, it's got a logo on there. And that'll just take you to Zazzle, our Zazzle t shirt gift shop. You know, you can even buy a mug with Starship Sova logo on. Logo on. Then we've got the two, we've got a couple of donates. Donate anything, donate monthly. You know, please don't forget that. Then we've got archived episodes. Now, that's actually, I need to kind of change that to the original episodes. And that's where you'll be able to go in and buy the original Starship Sovas, you know, the one who, I think it might be in a hundred of the very first ones with myself and Kieran in. And then we have the Starship interrogations. This is where those ones are going to be kept. Then we have the Starship Sova HD. Now, this is actually, at this very moment in time, it's... A default image. We haven't got an image up there, but we'll certainly get that sorted out. And if you click on it, that will take you through to the actually very first narrator's workshop. Eventually, you'll go through to a landing page on Starship Sova's HD, and then from there to different various, you know, all the kind of workshops and events that we've got going. 
But at the moment, there's only the one up there, the, the narrator's workshop. So it'll just take you straight to the Eventbrite holding page for that, and that's where you can sign up for that. So that's just a little, and I've, honestly, I've probably missed a load of things. We're having other things are coming, you know, where all Starship Sofa's videos are kept. We're going to have that. We're going to have them special interviews with our things special, you know, the Jack Williamson one. Jack Williamson, sorry, the Frederick Paul and Jack Vance one together. The Ted Chang one. That's going to have a little section. So there's loads coming. So just be patient. You know, there's so much work for Josh, but honestly little round of applause for the fella there Josh thank you so much and I can tell when what time he's finishing the night because Josh is you know honestly someone please hire Josh if you want your website you know doing or anything like that the guy's so professional you know after he's done his day's work he'll type us an email and let us know what's happened and it's just sometimes it's like it comes to me it's seven o'clock you know he's into the twilight hours over at his world oh josh thank you so much and actually we're going to be talking about doing a wordpress event as well how to get your site you know if you want to kind of site josh there is just a marvel of knowledge do you know what i mean and just get it all up and running we're going to do a little workshop on that side of things as well so listen out for that so I just want to run through quickly, if you don't mind, just what's going to happen in the Raiders workshop, which, like I say, is on sale there now, and tickets have sold. I am so pleased. So it starts, the show or the event kicks off on the 5th of February, and it starts at 5pm UK time and goes through till 7pm, which in, in America, you know, it's round about the 12 o'clock, mid, you know, midday till 2 o'clock, depending where you are, you know, it might be an hour or two beforehand or an hour or two after but somewhere around that time but five o'clock it's always going to i'm trying to aim for like the the saturdays so at the moment we have two ticket prices we have an early bird ticket now early bird tickets are get there early and you get it cheaper basically if you go before the 15th of january you get it for 30 pound anything after the 15th of january and it's up to the 35 pounds so that's just like a little enticement to get in early so if you go over and, you know, once you click on the, the, the logo or the default image on the website, it'll just take you to the kind of the landing page of the narrator's workshop, you know, this foundation level we've done. You don't, it hasn't committed you to buy yet. You know, you can have a look through and have a read of what's going on there. I've got a video up giving you some explanations, what, what the kind of, cause after, you know, five years of, of doing this, you know, you, you get some, you, audio narrations coming back that just you know are typically examples of what's what people do wrong you know so i've got this little video up there you can have a look and there's a few kind of words and what will be actually covered in the narrator's workshop guests i've got four guests on ray sizemore is now you know like you say i mentioned on the 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 meta show cut his teeth on the you know, Starship Sofa. This is a kind of the, the grounding. You know, this is giving you the 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 kickstart you need to kind of get away in narration. He's coming on. We've got Peter Seaton Clark, who just actually runs his own business, narration business. There, Martin Lysett, like I say, I mentioned before, who's heads down. Probably, I've never known a better sound engineer than Martin. What he can tell you, you know, on software is just an amazing. And again, what a narrator Martin is as well. Then we have Larry Santuro, who's you know, Larry's been in this kind of the acting business for you know, <laughs> a couple of years. You know, he's done it a few years. 
you know, and Larry's going to talk about the performance and everything like that as well. So I'm really quite proud of this narrator's workshop that we've got going. And if you're kind of, like I mentioned again in the, the, the Meta Show, if you sign up and you actually can't make that date, you know, still sign up because we'll send you, I'll send you the, kind of the video of it, you know, so you actually do get it. And I cannot stress enough how important it is to kind of have the video there. Yes, you, you, you come and you watch the show, but there's so many times you'll forget of like, oh, what? How did you? How did they do them settings? You know, we're also going to give our magic settings, our magic source, secret source of how to get a really good narration, and that sounds rich and deep. We're also going to tell you how to make money. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the kind of the cool thing about it. If you can and look at listen to my voice. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> would pay me for this guy. Hello, how are you, man? Where are you? You know, I'm not gifted with that. But there is people out there, you know, who, if you think you've got this little gift of a voice, you're kind of right up there on the ladder. Get your editing and your software sorted out. You know, there's a chance you can make money out of it, you know. And it's frightening how much Martin's making out of it. Do you know what I mean? And it's actually, he's not even doing fiction narration. He's doing, like, fact narrations. And we're going to mention how to go about actually making some money on your narrations. You know, it's a great hobby. And if you can make certainly money from it as well, there you go. So those are the few things that's going to be covered in this Narrators workshop. And there's actually going to be a Narrators Foundation Level 2 where we kind of jump in and, and go a little bit deeper. One of the things that honestly is, and I get so many times, is if you, you, know, if you can kind of get it all together, you think you're doing great... And yet it's taken you ages to edit, you know, like a couple of hours, two, three. And like sometimes I hear, and the last one I heard was a month to edit a story, do you know? And you're talking like, you know, begin, start at the very beginning to the very end of the narration. That doesn't have to happen. You know, you can, a two, three hour narration can be edited down professionally within 15 minutes, 20 minutes, if you know how to, you know, use your kind of software. So that's one of the things Martin's going to be talking about. So that is just a little heads up for the Narrator's Workshop Foundation Level 1. Tickets are now on sale. Please pop over there and treat yourself. And I will see you in that workshop one day soon. Next up is the main fiction, and it is Salvage in Space by Jack Williamson. This story actually came from Astounding Stories from March 1933. Wow, all those years ago. John Stuart Williamson was born in April the 29th, 1908, and he actually died just not long ago, 2006, on November the 10th. He wrote as Jack Williamson, but occasionally under the name or pseudonyms of Will Stewart, Nils or Sounderlund. He's actually referred to as the Dean of Science Fiction following Robert A. Heinlein's death in 1988. You know, the, the guys wrote so much, you know, so many, you know, stories and, and novels legion of space 1947 the humanoid series ct series undersea trilogy with frederick paul saga of the cuckoo with frederick paul these are old collections you know wow how much this man wrote through his lifetime novels you know it started off in 1930 with the girl from mars the green girl 1930 that's two novels in one year all up to this last one was the Stonehenge Gate, in, and I can remember that coming out as well in 2005. He was the co-winner of the 2000 John W. Campbell Memorial Award for his Terraforming Earth, which came out in 2001. 
This story is narrated by Marshall Latham. Marshall has narrated, or he will be narrating, a couple more stories for Starship. So if I do look out for Marshall, I just put a little message out there any narrators and Marshall stood up and put his hand up there please if you want to narrate for Starship Sova get in touch so the Starship Sova is very proud to present Salvage in Space by Jack Williamson his planet was the smallest in the solar system and the loneliest that Alan was thinking as he straightened wearily in the huge bulging inflated fabric of his off-spray space armor Walking awkwardly in the magnetic boots that held him to the black mass of meteoric iron, he mounted a projection and stood motionless, staring moodily away through the vision panels of his bulky helmet into the dark mystery of the void. His welding arc dangled at his belt, the electrode still glowing red. He had just finished securing to this slowly accumulated mass of iron his most recent find, a meteorite the size of his head. Five perilous weeks he had labored to collect this rugged lump of metal, a jagged mass some ten feet in diameter composed of hundreds of fragments that he had captured and welded together. His luck had not been good. His findings had been heartbreakingly small. The spectral flash analysis had revealed that the content of the precious metals was disappointingly minute. Footnote the meteor or asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter is mined by such adventurers as Thad Allen for the platinum, iridium, and osmium that all meteoric irons contain in small quantities. The meteor swarms are supposed by some astronomers to be fragments of a disrupted planet, which, according to Bode's law, should occupy this space. On the other side of this tiny sphere of hard-won treasure, his millenatomic rocket was sputtering, spurts of hot blue flame jetting from its exhaust. A simple mechanism, bolted to the first sizable fragment he had captured. It drove the iron ball through space like a ship. Through the magnetic soles of his insulated boots, Thad could feel the vibration of the iron mass beneath the rocket's regular thrust. The magazine of uranite fuel capsules was nearly empty now, he reflected. He would soon have to turn back toward Mars. Turn back... But how could he with so slender a reward for his efforts? Meteor mining is expensive. There was his bill at Millen and Hellion Mars for uranite and supplies, and the unpaid last installment on his osprey suit. How could he outfit himself again if he returned with no more metal than this? There were men who averaged a thousand tons of iron a month. Why couldn't fortune smile on him? He knew men who had made fabulous strikes, who had captured whole planetoids of rich metal, and, he knew, weary, white-haired men who had braved the perils of vacuum and absolute cold and bullet-swift meteors for hard years, who still hoped. But sometime fortune had to smile, and then... <sighs> the picture came to him. A tower of white metal among the low red hills near Hellion. A slim, graceful tower of argent, rising in a fragrant garden of flowering Martian shrubs, purple and saffron. And a girl waiting... At the silver door, a trim, slender girl in white, with blue eyes and hair richly brown. Thad had seen the white tower many times on his holiday tramps through the hills about Halion. He had even dared to ask if it could be bought, to find that its price was an amount that he might not amass in many years at his perilous profession. But the girl in white 
was yet only a glorious dream. The strangeness of interplanetary space, and the somber mystery of it, pressed upon him like an illimitable and deserted ocean. The sun was a tiny white disk on his right, hanging between rosy coronal wings. His native earth, a bright greenish point suspended in the dark gulf below it. Mars, nearer, smaller, a little ochre speck above the shrunken sun. Above him, below him, in all directions, was vastness, blackness, emptiness, ebon infinity sprinkled with far cold stars. Thad was alone, utterly alone. No man was visible in all the supernal vastness of space, and no work of man, save a few tools of his daring trade, and the glittering little rocket bolted to the black iron behind him. It was terrible to think that the nearest human being might be tens of millions of miles away. On his first trips, the loneliness had been terrible, unendurable. Now he was becoming accustomed to it. At least he no longer feared that he was going mad. But sometimes... Thad shook himself and spoke aloud, his voice ringing hollow in his huge metal helmet. Brace up, old top. In good company when you're by yourself, as Dad used to say. Be back in hell in a week or so, anyhow. Look up Dan and Chuck and the rest of the crowd again. At Comet's place. What price a friendly boxing match with Mason? Or an evening at the Teleview Theater? Fresh air instead of the stale synthetic stuff. Real food in place of these tasteless concentrates. A hot bath instead of greasing yourself. Too dull out here. Life. He broke off, set his jaw. No use thinking about such things, only made it worse. Besides, how did he know that a whirring meteor wasn't going to flash him out before he got back? He drew his right arm out of the bulging sleeve of the suit, into its ample interior, found a cigarette in an inside pocket, and lighted it. The smoke swirled around in the helmet, drawn swiftly into the air filters. Darn clever, these suits, he murmured. Food, smokes, water generator, all where you can reach them. And darned expensive, too. I'd better be looking for pay metal. He clambered to a better position, stood peering out into space, searching for a tiny gleam of sunlight on a meteoric fragment that might be worth capturing for its content of precious metals. For an hour he scanned the black, star-strewn gulf as the sputtering rocket continued to drive him forward. There she glows, he cried suddenly, and grinned. Before him was a tiny glowing fleck that moved along the unchanging stars. He stared at it intensely, breathing faster in his helmet. Always he thrilled to see such a moving gleam. What treasure it promised! At first sight it was impossible to determine the size or distance or rate of motion. It might be ten thousand tons of rich metal, a fortune! It would more probably prove to be a tiny, stony mass, not worth capturing. It might even be large and valuable, but moving so rapidly that he could not overtake it with the power of the diminutive Millen rocket. He studied the tiny speck intently, with practiced eye, as the minutes passed. An untrained eye would never have seen it at all, among the flaming hosts of stars. Skillfully... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He judged from its apparent rate of motion and its slow increase in billions, its size and distance from him. Must be, must be fair size. He spoke aloud at length. A hundred tons, I'll bet my helmet but scooting along pretty fast. Stretched the little old rocket to run it down. He clambered back to the rocket, changed the angle of the flaming exhaust to drive him directly across the path of the object ahead, filled the magazine again with the little pellets of uranite, which were fed automatically into the combustion chamber, and increased the firing rate. The trailing blue flame reached further backward from the incandescent orifice of the exhaust. The vibration of the metal sphere increased, Thad left the sputtering rocket and went back to where he could see the object before him. It was nearer now, rushing obliquely across his path. Would he be in time to capture it as it passed? Or would it hurtle by ahead of him and vanish in the limitless darkness of space before his feeble rocket could check the momentum of his ball of metal? He peered at it as it drew closer. Its surface seemed oddly bright, silvery, not the dull black of meteoric iron and it was larger, more distant, than he had thought at first. In form, too, it seemed curiously regular, ellipsoid. It was no jagged mass of metal. His hope sank, rose again immediately. Even if it were not the mass of rich metal for which he had prayed, it might be something as valuable, and more interesting. He returned to the rocket, adjusted the angle of the nozzle again, and advanced the firing time slightly, even at the risk of a ruinous explosion. When he returned to where he could see the hurling object before him, he saw that it was a ship, a tapering silver-green rocket flyer. Once more his dreams were dashed. The officers of interplanetary liners lose no love upon the meteor miners, claiming that their collected masses of metal, almost helpless, always underpowered, are menaces to navigation. Thad could expect nothing from the ship save a heliographed warning to keep clear. But how came a rocket flyer here, in the perilous swarms of the meteor belt? 
Many a vessel had been destroyed by collision with an asteroid, and the days before charted lanes were cleared of drifting metal. The lanes more frequently used, between Earth, Mars, Venus, and Mercury, were of course far inside the orbits of the asteroids, and the few ships running to Jupiter's moons avoided them by crossing millions of miles above their plane. Could it be that legendary green ship, said once to have mysteriously appeared, sliced up and drawn within her hull several of the primitive ships of that day, and then disappeared forever after in the remote wastes of space? Absurd, of course. He dismissed the idle fancy and imagined the ship still more closely. Then he saw that it was turning, end over end, very slowly. That meant that its gyros were stopped, that it was helpless, drifting, disabled, powerless to avoid the hurtling meteoric stones. Had it blundered unawares into a belt of swarms, been struck before the danger was realized? Was it a derelict, with all dead upon it? Either the ship's machinery was completely wrecked, Thad knew, or there was no one on watch. For the controls of a modern rocket flyer are so simple and so nearly automatic that a single man at the bridge can keep the vessel upon her course. It might be, he thought, that a meteorite had ripped open the hull, allowing the air to escape so quickly that the entire crew had been asphyxiated before any repairs could be made. But that seemed unlikely, since the ship must have been divided into several compartments by airtight bulkheads. Could the vessel have been deserted for some reason? The crew might have mutinied and left her in the life-tubes. She might have been robbed by pirates and set adrift. But with the space lanes policed as they were, piracy and successful mutiny were rare. Thad saw that the flyer's navigation lights were out. He found the heliograph signal mirror at his side, sighted it upon the ship, and worked the mirror rapidly. He waited, repeated the call. There was no response. The vessel was plainly a derelict. Could he board her and take her to Mars? By law, it was his duty to attempt to aid any helpless ship, or at least to try to save any endangered lives upon her. And the salvage award, if the ship should be deserted and he could bring her safe to port, would be half her value. No mean prize, that. Half the value of the ship and cargo. More than he was apt to earn in years of mining the meteor belt. With new anxiety, he measured the relative motion of the gleaming ship. It was going to pass ahead of him, and very soon. No more time for speculation. It was still uncertain whether it would come near enough so that he could get a line to it. Rapidly, he unslung from his belt the apparatus he used to capture meteors. A powerful electromagnet, with a thin, strong wire fastened to it, to be hurled from a helix gun. He set the drum on which the wire was round upon the metal at his feet, fastened it to its magnetic anchor, wondering if it would stand the terrific strain when the wire tightened. Raising the helix to his shoulder, he trained it upon a point well ahead of the rushing flyer, and stood waiting for the exact moment to press the lever. The slender spindle of the ship was only a mile away now, bright in the sunlight. He could see no break in her polished hull save for the dark rows of circular ports. She was not, by any means, completely wrecked. He read the black letters of her name. Red Dragon. The name of her home port below was in smaller letters, but in a moment he made them out. San Francisco. The ship then came from Earth. 
from the very city where Thad was born. The gleaming hole was near now, only a few hundred yards away, passing. Aiming well ahead of her, to allow for her motion, Thad pressed the key that hurled the magnet from the helix. It flung away from him, the wire streaming from the reel behind it. Thad's massive metal swung on past the ship as he returned to the rocket and stopped its clattering explosions. He watched the tiny black speck of the magnet. It vanished from sight in the darkness of space, appeared again against the white, burnished hull of the rocket ship. For a painful instant he thought he had missed. Then he saw that the magnet was fast to the side of the flyer, near the stern. The line tightened. Soon the strain would come upon it, as it checked the momentum of the mass of iron. He set the friction brake. Thad flung himself flat, grasped the wire above the reel. Even if the mass of iron tore itself free, he could hold to the wire and himself reach the ship. He flung past the deserted vessel. Behind it, his lump of iron swung like a pebble in a sling. A cloud of smoke burst from the burned lining of the friction brake in the reel. Then the wire was all out. There was a sudden jerk, and the hard-gathered sphere of metal was gone, snapped off into space. Thad clung desperately to the wire, muscles cracking, tortured arms almost drawn from their sockets. Fear flushed over his mind. What if the wire broke and left him floating helpless in space? It held, though, to his relief. He was trailing behind the ship. Eagerly, he seized the handle of the reel, began to wind up the mile of thin wire. Half an hour later, Thad's suited figure bumped gently against the shining hull of the rocket. He got to his feet and gazed backward into the starry gulf where his sphere of iron had long since vanished. Somebody is going to find himself an ice chunk of metal, all welded together and equipped for rocket navigation, he muttered. As for me, well, I've simply got to run this tub to Mars. He walked over the smooth, refulgent hull, held to it by magnetic soles. Nowhere was it broken, though he found scars where small meteoric particles had scratched the brilliant polish. So no meteor had wrecked the ship. What, then, was the matter? Soon he would know. The Red Dragon was not large. A hundred and thirty feet long, that estimated, with a beam of twenty-five feet. But her trim lines bespoke design recent and good. The double ring of black projecting rockets at the stern told of unusual speed. A pretty piece of salvage, he reflected, if he could land her on Mars. Half the value of such a ship, unharmed and safe in port, would be a larger sum than he dared put in figures. And he must take her in, now that he had lost his own rocket. He found the life tubes, six of them, slender silvery cylinders, lying secure in their niches, three along each side of the flyer. None was missing, so the crew had not willingly deserted the ship. He approached the main airlock at the center of the hull, behind the projecting dome of the bridge. It was closed. A glance at the dials told him there was full air pressure within it. It had, then, last been used to enter the rocket, not to leave it. Thad opened the exhaust valve, let the air hiss from the chamber of the lock. The huge door swung open in response to his hand upon the wheel, and he entered the cylindrical chamber. In a moment, the door was closed behind him. Air was hissing into the lock again. 
He started to open the faceplate of his helmet, longing for a breath of fresh air that did not smell of sweat and stale tobacco smoke, as that in his suit always did, despite the best chemical purifiers. Then he hesitated. Perhaps some deadly gas from the combustion chambers. Thad opened the inner valve and came upon the upper deck of the vessel. A floor around the full length of the ship, broken with hatches and companionways that gave to the rocket rooms, cargo holds, and quarters for crew and passengers below. There was an enclosed ladder that led to bridge and navigating room in the dome above. The hull formed an arched roof over it. The deck was deserted, lit only by three dim blue globes hanging from the curved roof. All seemed in order, the firefighting equipment hanging on the walls, and the huge metal patches and welding equipment for repairing breaks in the hull. Everything was clean, bright with polish or new paint. And all was very still. The silence held a vague, brooding threat that frightened Thad, made him wish for a moment that he was back upon his rugged ball of metal. But he banished his fear and strode down the deck. Midway of it he found a dark stain upon the clean metal, the black of long-dried blood, a few tattered scraps of cloth beside it, no more than bloody rags, and a heavy meat cleaver half hidden beneath a bit of darkened fabric. Mute record of tragedy! Thad strove to read it. Had a man fought here and been killed? It must have been a struggle of peculiar violence to judge by the dark splattered stains and the indescribable condition of the remnants of clothing. But what had he fought? Another man, or some thing? And what had become a victor and vanquished? He walked on down the deck. The torturing silence was broken by an abrupt patter of quick little footsteps behind him. He turned quickly, nervously, with a hand going instinctively to his welding arc, which he knew would make a fairly effective weapon. It was merely a dog, a little dog, yellow, nondescript, pathetically delighted. With a sharp, eager bark, it leaped up at Thad, pawing at his armor and licking it, standing on its hind legs and reaching toward the visor of his helmet. It was very thin, as if from long starvation. Both ears were ragged and bloody, and there was a long, unhealed scratch across the shoulder, somewhat inflamed, but not a serious wound. The bright, eager eyes were alight with joy, but Thad thought he saw fear in them, and even through the stiff fabric of the osprey suit he felt that the dog was trembling. Suddenly, with a low whine, it shrank close to his side, and another sound reached Thad's ears. A cry, weird and harrowing beyond telling, a scream so thin and so high that it roughened his skin, so keenly shrill that it tortured his nerves, a sound of that peculiar frequency that is more agonizing than any bodily pain. When silence came again, Thad was standing with his back against the wall, the welding arc in his hand. His face was cold with sweat, and a queer chill prickled up and down his spine. The yellow dog crouched, whimpering against his legs. Ominous, threatening stillness filled the ship again disturbed only by the whimpers and frightened growls of the dog. Trying to calm his overwrought nerves, Thad listened, strained his ears. He could hear nothing, and he had no idea from which direction the terrifying sound had come. 
a strange cry. Thad knew it had been born in no human throat, nor in any throat of any animal he knew, and it had carried an alien note that overcame him with instinctive fear and horror. What had voiced it? Was the ship haunted by some dread entity? For many minutes Thad stood upon the deck, waiting, tensely grasping the welding tool. But the nerve-shattering scream did not come again, nor any other sound. The yellow dog seemed half to forget its fear. It leaped up at his face again, with another short little bark. The air must be good, he thought, if the dog could live in it. He unscrewed the faceplate of his helmet and lifted it. The air that struck his face was cool and clean. He breathed deeply, grateful. And at first he did not notice the strange odor upon it. A curious, unpleasant scent. Earthly, almost fetid, unfamiliar. The dog kept leaping up, whining. "'Hungry boy?' Thad whispered. He fumbled in the bulky inside pockets of his suit, found a slab of concentrated food, and tossed it through the open panel. The dog sprang upon it, wolfed it eagerly, and came back to his side. Thad said at once about exploring the ship. First, he ascended the ladder to the bridge. A metal dome covered it, studded with transparent ports. Charts and instruments were in order, and the room was vacant, heavy with the fatal silence of the ship. Thad had no expert's knowledge of the flyer's mechanism, but he had studied interplanetary navigation to qualify for his license to carry masses of metal under rocket power through the space lanes and into planetary atmospheres. He was sure he could manage the ship if its mechanism were in good order, though he was uncertain of his ability to make any considerable repairs. To his relief, a scrutiny of the dials revealed nothing wrong. He started the gyro motors, got the great wheels to spinning, and thus stopped the slow, end-over-end turning of the flyer. He then went to the rocket controls, warmed three of the tubes, and set them to firing. The vessel answered readily to her helm. In a few minutes he had the red fleck of Mars over the bow. "'Yes, I can run her all right.' he announced to the dog, which had followed him up the steps, keeping close to his feet. "'Don't worry, old boy. We'll be eating juicy beefsteak together in a week, at Comet's place at Hellion, down by the canal. Not much style, but the eats. And now we're going to do a little detective work, to find out what made that disagreeable noise, and what happened to all your fellow astronauts. Better find out.' before it happens to us. He shut off the rockets and climbed down from the bridge again. When Thad started down the companionway to the officer's quarters, in the central of one of the five main compartments of the ship, the dog kept close to his legs, growling, trembling, hackles lifted. Sensing the animal's terror, pitying it for the naked fear in its eyes, Thad wondered what dramas of horror it might have seen. The cabins of the navigator, calculator, chief technician, and first officer were empty and forbidding with the ominous silence of the ship. They were neatly in order, and the berths had been made since they were used. But there was a large bloodstain, black and circular, on the floor of the calculator's room. The captain's cabin held evidence of a violent struggle. The door had been broken in. Its fragments, with pieces of broken furniture, books, Covers from the berth, 
and three service pistols were scattered about in indescribable confusion, all stained with blood. Among the frightful debris, Thad found several scraps of clothing of dissimilar fabrics. The guns were empty. Attempting to reconstruct the action of the tragedy from those grim clues, he imagined that the five officers, aware of some peril, had gathered there, fought, and died. The dog refused to enter the room. It stood at the door, looking anxiously after him, trembling and whimpering pitifully. Several times it sniffed the air and drew back, snarling. Thad thought that the unpleasant earthly odor he had noticed upon opening the faceplate of his helmet was stronger here. After a few minutes of searching through the wildly disordered room, he found the ship's log, or its remains. Many pages had been torn from the book, and the remainder, soaked with blood, formed a stiff black mass. Only one legible entry did he find, that on a page torn from the book, which somehow had escaped destruction. Dated five months before, it gave the position of the vessel and her bearings. She was then just outside Jupiter's orbit, earthward bound, and concluded with remark of sinister implications. Another man gone this morning. Sims, assistant technician. A fine workman. Odin swears he heard something moving on the deck. Cook thinks some of the doctor's stuffed monstrosities have come to life. Ridiculous, of course, but what is one to think? Pondering the significance of those few lines, Thad climbed back to the deck. Was the ship haunted by some weird death that had seized the crew man by man mysteriously? That was the obvious implication, and if the flyer had been still outside Jupiter's orbit when those words were written, it must have been weeks before the end. A lurking, invisible death. The scream he had heard. He descended into the forecastle, and came upon another such silent record of frightful carnage as he found in the captain's cabin. Dried blood, scraps of cloth, knives and other weapons. A fearful question was beginning to obsess him. What had become of the bodies of those who must have died in these conflicts? He dared not think the answer. Gripping the welding arc, Thad approached the afterhatch, giving to the cargo hold. Trepidation almost overpowered him, but he was determined to find the sinister menace of the ship before it found him. The dog whimpered, hung back, and finally deserted him, contributing nothing to his peace of mind. The hold proved to be dark. An indefinite black space, oppressive with the terrible silence of the flyer. The air within it bore still more strongly the unpleasant fetter. Thad hesitated on the steps. The hold was not inviting. But at the thought that he must sleep, unguarded, while taking the flyer to Mars, his resolution returned. The uncertainty, the constant fear, would be unendurable. He climbed on down, feeling for the light button. He found it as his feet touched the floor. Bright blue flooded the hold. It was filled with monstrous things, colossal creatures, such as nothing that ever lived upon the earth, like nothing known in the jungles of Venus or the deserts of Mars, or anything that has been found upon Jupiter's moons. They were monsters remotely resembling insects or crustaceans, but as large as horses or elephants, creatures upreared upon strange limbs armed with hideous fanged jaws, cruel talons, frightful saw-toothed snouts, and glittering scales, red and yellow and green, 
They leered at him with phosphorescent eyes, yellow and purple. They cast grotesquely gigantic shadows in the blue light. A cold shock of horror started along Thad's spine at the sight of those incredible nightmare things. Automatically, he flung up the welding tool, flickering over the lever with his thumb, so that violent electric flame played about the electrode. Then he saw that the crowding, hideous things were motionless, that they stood upon wooden pedestals, that many of them were supported upon metal bars. They were dead, mounted, collected specimens of some alien life. Grinning wanly, and conscious of a weakness in the knees, he muttered, They sure will fill the museum, if everybody gets the kick out of them that I did. A little too realistic, I'd say. Guess these are the stuffed monstrosities mentioned in the page out of the log. No wonder the cook was afraid of them. Some of them do look hellishly alive. He started across the hold, shrinking involuntarily from the armored enormities that seemed crouched to spring at him, motionless eyes staring. So at the end of the long space, he found the treasure. Glittering in the blue light, it looked unreal, incredible, a dazzling dream. He stopped among the fearful things that seemed gathered as if to guard it, and stared with wide eyes through the open faceplate of his helmet. He saw neat stacks of gold ingots, new, freshly smelted, bars of silver-white iridium, of argent platinum, of blue-white osmium, many of them, thousands of pounds Thad knew. He trembled at the thought of their value, almost beyond calculation. Then he saw the coffer, lying beyond the piled gleaming ingots, a huge box eight feet long made of some crystal that glittered with snowy whiteness filled with sparkling iridescent gleams and inlaid with strange designs apparently in vermilion enamel with a little cry he ran toward the chest moving awkwardly in the loose deflated fabric of the osprey suit beside the coffer in the floor of the hold was literally a mountain of flame-blazing gems heaped as if they had been carelessly dumped from it cut diamonds incredibly gigantic monster emeralds, sapphires, rubies, and strange stones that Thad did not recognize. And Thad gasped with horror when he looked at the designs of the vermilion inlay in the white gleaming crystal, weird forms, shapes of creatures somewhat like gigantic spiders, and more unlike them. Demoniac things, wickedly fanged jaws slavering, executed with mastery skill that made them seem living, menacing, secretly gloating. Thad stared at them for long minutes, fascinated almost hypnotically. Three times he approached the chest, to lift the lid and find what it held. And three times the unutterable horror of those crimson images thrust him back, shuddering. "'Nothing but pictures,' he muttered hoarsely. A fourth time he advanced, trembling, and seized the lid of the coffer. Heavy, massive, it was fashioned also— of glistening white crystal, and inlaid in crimson with weirdly hideous figures. Great hinges of white platinum held it on the farther side. It was fastened with a simple heavy hasp of precious metal. Hands quivering, Thad snapped back the hasp, lifted the lid. New treasure in the chest would not have surprised him. He was prepared to meet dazzling wonders of gems or priceless metal 
nor would he have been astonished at some weird creature such as one of those whose likenesses were inlaid in the crystal. But what he saw made him drop the massive lid. A woman lay in the chest, motionless, in white. In a moment he raised the lid again, examined the still form more closely. The woman had been young. The features were regular, good to look upon. The eyes were closed. The white face appeared very peaceful. Save for the extreme cadaverous pallor, there was no mark of death. With a fancy that the body might be miraculously living, sleeping, Thad thrust an arm out through the open panel of his suit and touched a slender bare white arm. It was stiff, very cold. The still, pallid face was framed in fine brown hair. The fair, small hands were crossed upon the breast over the simple white garment. A queer ache came into his heart. Something made him think of a white tower in the red hills near Helion, and a girl waiting in its fragrant garden of saffron and purple. A girl like this. The body lay upon a bed of blazing jewels. It appeared, Thad thought, as if the pile of gems upon the floor had been hastily scraped from the coffer to make room for the quiet form. He wondered how long it had lain there. It looked as if it might have been living but minutes before. Some preservative. His thought was broken by a sound that rang from the open hatchway on the deck above, the furious barking and yelping of the dog. Abruptly, that was silent and in its place came the uncanny and terrifying scream that Thad had heard once before on this flyer of mystery, a shriek so keen and shrill that it seemed to tear out his nerves by their roots, the voice of the haunter of the ship. When Thad came back upon the deck, the dog was still barking nervously. He saw the animal forward, almost at the bow, hackles raised, tail between its legs, it was slinking backward, barking sharply as if to call for aid. Apparently it was retreating from something between Thad and itself. But Thad, searching the dimly lit deck, could see no source of alarm, nor could the structures upon it have shut any large object from his view. "'It's all right,' Thad called, intending to reassure the frightened animal, but finding his voice queerly dry. "'Coming on the double, old man. Don't worry.' The dog had reached the end of the deck. It stopped yelping, but snarled and whined as if in terror. It began darting back and forth, moving exactly as if something were slowly closing in upon it, trapping it in the corner. But Thad could see nothing. Then it made a wild dash back toward Thad, darting along the wall, as if to run past an unseen enemy. Thad thought he heard quick, rasping footsteps then, that were not those of the dog and something seemed to catch the dog in mid-air as it leaped. It was hurled howling to the deck. For a moment it struggled furiously, as if an invisible claw had pinned it down. Then it escaped, and fled whimpering to Thad's side. He saw a new wound across its hips, three long parallel scratches, from which fresh red blood was trickling. Regular scraping sounds came from the end of the deck where no moving thing was to be seen. Sounds such as might be made by the walking of feet of unsheathed claws. Something was coming back toward Thad, something that was invisible. Terror seized him with the knowledge, 
he had nerved himself to face desperate men or a savage animal, but an invisible being that could creep upon him and strike unseen? It was incredible. Yet it had seen the dog knocked down and the bleeding wound it had received. His heart paused, then beat very quickly. For the moment he thought only blindly of escape. He knew only an overpowering desire to hide, to conceal himself from the invisible thing. Had it been possible, he might have tried to leave the flyer. Beside him was one of the companionways amidships, giving access to a compartment of the vessel that he had not explored. He turned, leaped down the steps, with the terrified dog at his heels. Below he found himself in the short hall, dimly lighted. Several metal doors opened from it. He tried one at random. It gave. He sprang through, let the dog follow, closed and locked it. Trying to listen, he leaned weakly against the door. The rushing of his breath, swift and regular. The loud hammer of his thudding heart. The dog's low whines. Then, unmistakable scraping sounds outside. The scratching of claws, that new, invisible claws. He stood there, bracing the door with the weight of his body, holding the welding arc ready in his hand. Several times the hinges creaked, and he felt a heavy pressure against the panels. But at last the scratching sound ceased. He relaxed. The monster had withdrawn, at least for a time. When he had time to think, the invisibility of the thing was not so incredible. The mounted creatures he had seen in the hold were evidence that the flyer had visited some unknown planet where weird life reigned. And it was not beyond reason that such a planet should be inhabited by beings invisible to human sight. Human vision, as he knew, utilizes only a tiny fraction of the spectrum. The creature must be largely transparent to visible light, as human flesh is radiolucent to hard x-rays. Quite possibly it could be seen by infrared or ultraviolet light. Evidently it was visible enough to the dog's eyes, with their different range of sensitivity. Pushing the subject from his mind, he turned to survey the room in which he had burst. It had apparently been occupied by a woman. A frail blue silk dress and more intimate items of feminine wearing apparel were hanging above the berth. Two pairs of delicate black slippers stood neatly below it. Across from him was a dressing table, with a large mirror above it. Combs, pins, and jars of cosmetic cluttered it. And Thad saw upon it a little leather-bound book, locked, stamped on the back, diary. He crossed the room and picked up the little book, which smelled faintly of jasmine. Momentary shame overcame him at thus stealing the secrets of an unknown girl. Necessity, however, left him no choice but to seize any chance of learning more of this ship of mystery and her invisible haunter. He broke the flimsy fastening. Linda Cross was the name written on the flyleaf, in a firm, clear, feminine hand. On the next page was the photograph, in color, of a girl, the brown-haired girl whose body Thad had discovered in the crystal coffer in the hold. Her eyes, he saw, had been blue. He thought she looked very lovely. Like the waiting girl in his old dream of the silver tower in the Red Hills by Hellion. The diary, it appeared, had not been kept very devotedly. Most of the pages were blank. One of the first entries, dated a year and a half before, told of a party that Linda had attended in San Francisco, and of her refusal to dance with a certain man, referred to as Benny. P. 
because he had been unpleasantly insistent about wanting to marry her. It ended. Dad said tonight that we're going off in the dragon again. All the way to Uranus, if the new fuel works, as he expects. What a lark! To explore a few new worlds of our own. Dad says one of Uranus's moons is as large as Mercury. And Benny won't be proposing again soon. Turning on, Thad found other scattered entries, some of them dealing with the preparation for the voyage, the start from San Francisco, and a huge bunch of flowers from Benny, the long months of the trip through space, out past the orbit of Mars, above the meteor belt, across Jupiter's orbit, beyond the track of Saturn, which was the farthest point that rocket explorers had previously reached, and on to Uranus, where they could not land because of the unstable surface. The remainder of the entries Thad found less frequent, shorter, bearing the mark of excitement. Landing upon Titania, the third and largest satellite of Uranus, an earthly forest sheltering strange and monstrous life, the hunting of weird creatures, and the mounting them for museum specimens. Then the discovery of a ruined city, whose remains indicated that it had been built by a lost race of intelligent spider-like things. The finding of a temple, whose walls were of precious metals, containing a crystal chest filled with wondrous gems. The smelting of the metal into convenient ingots, and the transfer of the treasure to the hold. The first sinister note there entered the diary. Some of the men say we shouldn't have disturbed the temple, think it will bring us bad luck. Rubbish, of course. But one man did vanish while they were smelting the gold. Poor Mr. Tom James. I suppose he ventured away from the rest, and something caught him. The few entries that followed were shorter, and showed increasing nervous tension. They recorded the departure from Titania, made almost as soon as the treasure was loaded. The last was made several weeks later. A dozen men had vanished from the crew, leaving only gouts of blood to hint the manner of their going. The last entry ran, Dad says I'm to stay here today. Old oh dear, he's afraid the thing will get me, whatever it is. It's really serious. Two men taken from their berths last night, and not a trace. Some of them think it's a curse on the treasure. One of them swears he saw Dad's stuffed specimens moving about in the hold. Some terrible thing must have slipped aboard the flyer out of the jungle. That's what Dad and the captain think. Queer they can't find it. They've searched all over. Well, musing and regretful, Thad turned back for another look at the smiling girl in the photograph. What a tragedy her death had been. Reading the diary had made him like her. Her balance and humor, her quiet affection for Dad, the calm courage with which she seemed to have faced the creeping, lurking death that darkened the ship with its unescapable shadow. How had her body come to be in the coffer, he wondered, when all others were... gone? It had shown no marks of violence. She must have died of fear. No, her face had seemed too calm and peaceful for that. Had she chosen easy death by some poison, rather than that other dreadful fate... Had her body been put in the chest to protect it, and the poison arrested decomposition? Thad was still studying the picture, thoughtfully, sadly, when the dog, which had been silent, suddenly growled again and retreated from the door toward the corner of the room. 
the invisible monster had returned. Thad heard its claws scratching across the floor again, and he heard another dreadful sound, not the long, shrill scream that had so grated his nerves before, but a short, sharp coughing or barking, a series of shrill, indescribable notes that could have been made by no beast he knew. The decision to open the door cost a huge effort of Thad's will. For hours he had waited, thinking desperately, and the thing outside the door had waited as patiently, scratching upon it from time to time, uttering those dreadful, shrill, coughing cries. Sooner or later he would have to face the monster. Even if he could escape from the room and avoid it for a time, he would have to meet it in the end, and it might creep upon him while he slept. To be sure, the issue of the combat was extremely doubtful. The monster apparently had succeeded in killing every man upon the flyer, even though some of them had been armed. It must be large and very ferocious. But Thad was not without hope. He still wore his osprey suit, the thick fabric made of metal wires impregnated with a tough elastic composition, should afford considerable protection against the thing. The welding arc, intended to fuse refractive meteoric iron, would be no mean weapon at close quarters, and the quarters would be close. If only he could find some way to make the thing visible. Paint or something of the kind would stick to its skin. His eyes, searching the room, caught a jar of face powder on the dressing table. Dash that over it. It ought to stick enough to make the outline visible. So at last, holding the powder ready in one hand, he waited until a time when the pressure upon the door had just relaxed, and he knew the monster was waiting outside. Swiftly, he opened the door. Thad had partially overcome the instinctive horror that the unseen being had first aroused in him, but it returned in a sickening wave when he heard the short, shrill coughing cries, hideously eager, that greeted the opening of the door, and the quick rasping of the naked claws upon the floor. Sounds from nothingness. He flung the powder at the sound. A form of weird horror materialized before him, still half invisible, half outlined with the white film of adhering powder. Gigantic and hideous claws that seemed to reach out from the empty air, the side of the huge, scaly body, a yawning, dripping jaw. For a moment Thad could see great hooked fangs in that jaw. Then they vanished, as if an unseen tongue had licked the powder from them, dissolving it in fluids which made it invisible. That unearthly, half-seen shape leaped at him. He was carried backward into the room, hurled to the floor. Claws were rasping upon the tough fabric of his suit. His arm was seized crushingly in half-visible jaws. Desperately, he clung to the welding tool. The heated electrode was driven toward his body. He fought to keep it away. He knew that it would burn through even the insulated fabric of his suit. A claw ripped savagely at his side. He heard the sharp rending sound as the tough fabric of his suit was torn and felt a thin pencil of pain drawn along his body where the claw cut his skin. Suddenly, the suit was full of the earthly fetter of the monster's body, nauseatingly intense. Thad gasped, trying to hold his breath, and thrust upward hard with the incandescent electrode. He felt warm blood trickling from the wound. A numbing blow struck his arm. The welding tool was carried from his hand. Flung to the side of the room, it clattered to the floor, and then a heavy weight came upon his chest, forcing the breath from his lungs. The monster stood upon his body and clawed at him. Thad squirmed furiously. He kicked out with his feet, encountering a great hard body. 
Futilely he beat and thrust his arms against the pillar-like limb. His body was being mauled, bruised beneath the thick fabric. He heard it tear again along his right thigh, but he felt no pain and thought the claws had not reached the skin. It was the yellow dog that gave him the chance to recover the weapon. The animal had been running back and forth in the opposite side of the room, fairly howling in excitement and terror. Now, with the mad courage of desperation, it leaped recklessly at the monster. A mighty, dimly-seen claw caught it, hurled it back across the room. It lay still, broken, whimpering. For a moment the thing had lifted its weight from Thad's body, and Thad slipped quickly from beneath it, flung himself across the room, snatched up the welding tool. In an instant the creature was upon him again, but he met it with the incandescent electrode. He was crouched in the corner now, where it could come at him from only one direction. Its claws still slashed at him furiously, but he was able to cling to the weapon and meet each onslaught with hot metal. Gradually its mad attacks weakened. Then one of his blind thrusting blows seemed to burn into a vital organ. A terrible choking, strangling sound came from the air, and he heard the thrashing struggles of wild convulsions. At last all was quiet. He prodded the thing again and again with the hot electrode, and it did not move. It was dead. The creature's body was so heavy that Thad had to return to the bridge and shut off the current in the gravity plates along the keel before he could move it. He dragged it to the lock through which he had entered the flyer and consigned it to space. Five days later, Thad brought the Red Dragon into the atmosphere of Mars. A puzzled pilot came aboard in response to his signals, docked the flyer safely at Hellion. Thad went down into the hold again with the astonished port authorities who had come aboard to inspect the vessel. Again he passed among the grotesque and outrageous monsters in the hold, leading the gasping officers. While they marveled at the treasure, he lifted the weirdly embellished lid of the coffer of white crystal, and looked once more upon the still form of the girl within it. Pity stirred him. An ache came to his throat. Linda Cross, so quiet and cold and white, and yet so lovely. How terrible her last days of life must have been, with doom shadowing the vessel, and the men vanishing mysteriously one by one. Terrible! until she had sought the security of death. Strangely, Thad felt no great elation at the thought that half of the incalculable treasure about him was now safely his own, as the award of salvage. If only the girl were still living, he felt a poignantly keen desire to hear her voice. Thad found the note when they started to lift her from the chest. A hasty scrawl, it lay beneath her head, among glittering gems. This woman is not dead. Please have her given skilled medical attention as soon as possible. She lies in a state of suspended animation, induced by the injection of fifty minims of Zaranol. She is my daughter, Linda Cross, and my sole heir. I entreat the finders of this to have care given her, and to keep in trust for her such part of the treasure on this ship as may remain after the payment of salvage or other claims. Sometimes she will wake, perhaps in a year, perhaps in a hundred. The purity of my drugs is uncertain, and the injection was made hastily, so I do not know the exact time that must elapse. 
If this is found, it will be because the lurking thing upon the ship has destroyed me and all my men. Please do not fail me. Levington Cross Thad bought the white tower of his dreams, slim and graceful in its Martian garden of saffron and purple, among the low ochre hills beside Helion. He carried the sleeping girl through the silver door where the girl of his dreams had waited, and set the coffer in a great vaulted chamber. Many times each day he came into the room where she lay, to look into her pallid face and feel her cold wrist. He kept a nurse in attendance, and had a physician call daily. A long Martian year went by. Looking into his mirror one day, Thad saw little wrinkles about his eyes. He realized that the nervous strain of anxiety of waiting was aging him and it might be a hundred years, he remembered, before Linda Cross came from beneath the drug's influence. He wondered if he would grow old and infirm, while Linda lay still young and beautiful and unchanged in her sleep. If she might awake after long years, and see in him only a feeble old man. He knew that he would not be sorry he had waited, even if he should die before she revived. On the next day, the nurse called him into the room where Linda lay, he was bending over her when she opened her eyes. They were blue, glorious. A long time she looked up at him, first in fearful wonder, then with confidence and dawning understanding. And at last she smiled. <laughs> There you go. Copyright for Jacks. Anybody's. Anybody can have it. I got it from Gutenberg. There you go. It's yours. Please share it around. Mention Starship Sova. Mention the website. One thing I forgot to mention as well. Those cards with the signatures on that Dee's putting together. I've seen the kind of mock-ups from them. They're, they're going to be fantastic. For anybody... What I'll do is, Dee's going to print them up and we'll stick on the signatures. And anyone donates £10 to Starships over to keep the old girl going, will send one of those out as a thank you. And they do look really nice. I'm really proud. Dee, thank you so much for that. So anybody from today's show donates £10, I will take your name, I'll drop you an email, and we'll get one of those cards over to you. Thank you so much. That is Oral's Lights. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see, that is Starship Sofa, show 170 put to bed. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.